IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we review the new album by Gang of Youths. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He just bought the vinyl version of Fear Inoculum for $810. Ian Cohen. You know, Ian, how you? know, when I see a story like that about Tool selling an album for $810, my first joke is, like, well, what Tool fan has $810? Thinking, you know, thinking that, like, we're still in 1996 and the average Tool fan is like me, like, playing GoldenEye in high school and you know, buying CDs. No, man. Yeah. They're like... I think there's like I would imagine that the financial background of the average tool fan is probably higher than it is for a lot of bands. I don't know if it's like the average, but it's definitely stratified where there's like this upper crust of really really super rich tool fans who 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 would probably like rather buy this album in like crypto or something like that. I, 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 it's, it's like true. tool coin That's or something. True. Like I really like you know, Maynard's yeah. got his uh, his vineyards and all of his other uh, affairs. Like I think it's if it hasn't happened already, maybe it's like something happening happening super secretly on the tool message boards where people are only buying things in like tool related currency. Well, I think what's going to happen is you know we're on the verge of World War Three right now, so there's going to be a nuclear winter on our horizon, and then in the new world. <laughs> the uh, currency will be tool coin. Like that will be the way in which we conduct the post-apocalypse economy. And we're going to look back on this uh, and on this $810 version, I think it's a box set. I don't think it's just like a record. Oh, oh well that explains it. <laughs> and it's a limited edition box set of Fear Inoculum. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know what's in the box set. I assume a bottle of Maynard James Keenan's delicious wine yeah. <laughs> will probably be in there. Uh, maybe um, like a snare, uh, you know, top yeah. from one of Danny Carey's drums. I was about to say, it's like, do you know the drum? I'm like, of course you know the name of the drummer. Danny Carey. Yeah, okay. I know I know Danny Carey because I think he's a great drummer. Oh, I yeah. And I, I'm a drummer person. Okay. The drummer is often my favorite member of any band. So if I can name a member, it's usually the drummer. All right. Um I feel like I probably gave the most positive review of Fear Inoculum, by the way. Like, my review is, like, fairly positive. No. Did you? There there, there have to be, like, I'm imagining, like, the more metal-leaning magazines, people would, like, call this album, like, the best one since, uh, you know, Rush's 2112 or something like That's that. That's true. Yours might, be, yours might be the most positive mainstream one, but... Well, yeah, or in the indie rock yeah. press... Um, I like to think that I was leading the charge for Fear Inoculum. <laughs> Maybe my review is in the box set. Maybe yeah. there's, there's like a there's an NFT of my review or, in the box set, or may, maybe like a picture of like Maynard like wiping his ass with a printout of Pitchfork <laughs> one or something like that. <laughs> yeah, look, man, like I'm, I'm I'm like talking myself into actually buying this thing now. Like I gotta know what's in it. Well, okay, I'm thinking on some level that this was a joke that they put this out there because $810, it's such a specific yes. dollar amount. It wasn't like $799.99. Yeah, it's, it's like some sort of Fibonacci sequence type thing like they use to determine the uh, the time signature of schism or something like that, you know? <laughs> 
Like, which is an actual yeah. thing. I think they actually did that. I, I'm not sure if it was schism. I'm pretty sure it is, man. Like, God, yeah, we're, we're, we're just going, like, straight up Tool on IndieCast now. Like, it, the, the it. era of IndieCast is over. We are now ToolCast. We're ToolCast. You know, I am inspired by this story, though, because, you know, the news broke this week about this vinyl box set being absurdly overpriced. Yeah. Then the Tool fans rose up to protest. It was like the trucker convoy of prog metal <laughs> they, they rose up to protest this box set and i think they lowered the price yeah. because of that hey democracy works or uh protest work or bullying works i don't know <laughs> their their voices were heard they rose up they struck against tool tool was checked yeah. they're like we'll lower the price a freer inoculum. You know, I think we need to do a Patreon <laughs> to raise money so we can buy this thing and talk yeah. about it on the show. Yeah, and also I think the like this what like you're actually describing like a universe where the world runs on tool-based currency and the people rise up to battle these overlords. Like that is the concept behind the next tool record. Like we've written Oh man. We've written the plot of the next tool album, Maynard if you're listening, or Justin Chancellor or Adam Jones. <laughs> <laughs> look at you yeah yeah you, look yeah, at you just so <laughs> subtly you know doing a little uh little uh, show off move there i know that's flexing on him um yeah so Which, and, and i and i can appreciate that you knew justin chancellor's name he is the uh he's the bass player he's the bass player and adam jones is the guitar player that's correct so if y'all are listening like we we let's link up let's 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 hash out the future together so, uh, Ian, I want to publicly thank you oh. on this podcast for turning me on to uh, my latest television slash music obsession, which is uh, the Hulu TV series Pam and Tommy, <laughs> uh, which I have been inhaling episodes of this show this week. And it's because you posted um, a video of a, of a scene yes. from, uh, <laughs> I guess, the previous episode. There was an episode that went... Uh, live on Wednesday night, I think. Yeah. I haven't seen that one yet. Um, so the most recent one I've seen, you took this scene. Do you want to describe yeah. the scene? Well, first of all, should we just say that this is like a, this is a TV series <laughs> yes. about Pam, Pamela Anderson and Tommy yeah. Lee. It's a docudrama, so it's, yes. yeah. In the style of like those Ryan Murphy shows, uh-huh. like the, the, the OJ, OJ one versus the people, uh, right. American Crime Story, uh, Impeachment. The one with yeah, the one with the the, the Monica Lewinsky yeah. thing, and the, the director of this series, one of the executive producers, is this guy Craig Gillespie who directed I Tanya. Yes, uh, and so if you saw that movie, the the TV show is very much in that style, kind of a flashy cinematic uh, docudrama, uh, kind of campy, but also kind of serious at the same time. But yeah, do you want to describe the scene yeah. that you posted? So. I I had not a lot of interest in those shows because I think, you know, I loved watching OJ for the people, but like as you know, that's type of uh that type of show continued forward, it just seemed like an opportunity. It seemed like a lot of punching down, like ha ha ha, look at it, look at these idiots with their and just seeing like famous actors with bad wigs. Um but, you know, I, I was just going about my business and my wife calls out to me, it's like, "Ian, I, I th- like I think you need to watch this scene." And like, "Uh, okay." And it's I, 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 what happens, like, I don't think I can do it justice by just talking about it, but what happens is that Motley Crue, or specifically Tommy Lee, finds out that they were knocked out of the A studio 
to the B studio. This is 1997 when they were about to make Generation Swine. Uh, Electra, the record label, kicked them out of A studio. They're now in the B studio. And then Tommy Lee finds out who's in the A studio. And he goes there. And it's like third eye blind. <laughs> like people are like, yeah, you could tell like they really casted that band well. It's not actual third eye blind, but like I believe that. Stephen Jenkins is probably pissed they didn't ask him to play himself. Um, and it's but a pretty good Stephen yeah, Jenkins and like the rest Kevin of the Kevin Kadogan and the other two guys. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it's like Kevin well, Kadogan. Who, who? Which one is he, Kevin? I believe Kadogan. he's the is guitarist that... who like had all the good ideas and were kit was kicked out of the band after Blue. Uh, I was impressed that they had the guy with the with the ponytail. Yeah, they really um, nailed the bassist. So, the, because that shows, because they could have just put anyone in there. Yeah. I, there's not a ton of people that knows that know what Third Eye Blind looks like, <laughs> no. but they yeah they cast like actors that looked like the actual yeah. Third Eye Blind, and that and that lineup changed I think pretty soon after that album. Yeah, right? it, I mean, after Blue, like Stephen Jenkins just got like a bunch of ringers to uh, yeah. you know do his thing. But what happens is like Tommy Lee goes in there and he tries to like. You know, he tries the big, he tries the big league third eye blind. And he says, like, and I quote, like, well, I got bad news. Like, he's like, who the fuck are you guys? And they're like, we're third eye blind. And Tommy Lee says, well, I got bad news for you, third eye blind. And then, like, out of nowhere, like, Nikki Six slowly starts to fade into the, the, the screen with his, like, arms crossed. Um, and, you know, after that, it, it just kind of showed me, like, what the attitude of this show was. Because there are so many scenes like this, which are... It very fit like someone did the research this scene did not actually happen third eye blind recorded their album in san francisco um but well, and also i think that scene takes place in 1995 no it says be... i believe it's 1997 wasn't it because i thought the show takes place in 95 96 doesn't it i don't necessarily think so either way it's it's hard to know because yeah. it, it changes uh time frames a little bit <laughs> they play fast because... and loose with the actual history which i think is really funny because it gets me involved way more than like a straight up retelling would oh absolutely i mean the, the thing about this show i i think it's legitimately good okay. like i i think i think it's well done uh but you know, being a music nerd, you do dissect these uh, little moments of, for accuracy. Like there's a scene in that same episode mm-hmm. of with the third eye blind scene where Tommy Lee is at the Viper Room <laughs> and they're playing Slater Kinney yeah. over the PA. Yeah. And um, I looked it up. Like the song they're playing is called Real Man. Yeah. And that's on Slater Kinney's 1995 debut. Yes. And I, because I, because again, I think that scene it takes place in ninety six, ninety five, right. around there. But I was just thinking, like, would the Viper Room be playing like Slater Kenny? Like, not because this is before like Dig Me Out. I Dig yeah. Me Out was their, I think, real critical breakthrough. That's when you could kind of say they were mainstream. But like, because like the Viper Room to me, I've never been there, but based on what I know about it, it seems like. They, they, I feel like they'd be playing like Stone Temple Pilots or something. Oh, absolutely. Or they'd 95. be playing Motley Crue. Like that's right. They're the type of place that you know you would go still see like quasi hair metal bands. Like I, I like I, I tried to look it up, and it you know Slater Kenny did not play the Viper Room at that year. They did play in 1995 the Riot Girl Convention in L.A., which. If you're going to, like, really fuck up with history, like, I would just love to see a scene where Motley Crue goes to the Riot Girl convention in 1995. Like, yeah, you could make an entire going... bottle episode out of that. 
like they think it's like strippers are there or something. They're gonna go pick yeah, up some strippers. Yeah, and they, yeah and Riot they, Girl. That's my favorite strip club on the Sunset. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the wildest girls. Uh, <laughs> one thing I think that would have been funny for that Viper Room scene is if they would have had Adam Duritz <laughs> play the bartender because Adam Duritz he's talked about how he was a bartender at the Viper Room after the success of Mr. Jones and August huh. and everything. After like it was. You know, him doing the 90s rock star, I, I want to be a regular person type thing. <laughs> so it would have been funny if they would have had like dreadlocked oh, man. Adam Duritz pouring <laughs> Tommy Lee a drink. And no one would have, you know, 99.9% of viewers would have been confused about about why Adam Duritz was in the scene. But for the 0.1% of us who know that he worked there, that would have been mind-blowing. Um it is interesting to me, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like every TV show and documentary about the 90s yeah. has an element where it talks about how horrible the media was to women. Yeah. Like, that's become <laughs> something, and that's a totally valid oh, totally. criticism, yeah. and, and you can see it. I mean, it's hilarious to me that, like, every one of these shows now has to have a scene where Jay Leno does a hacky joke yeah. that now just seems totally and needlessly cruel. Yeah. I mean, because that's, like, an element of the show. Um, but it just strikes me as something different than, say, shows or documentaries about the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. which I feel like tend to be more straightforward nostalgia exercises. Or or it's like, oh, look at these clothes. Like, these clothes are funny. Or, like, the slang was funny. Yeah. I don't. I feel like with the '90s, when people are looking back, for some reason they're more critical of the '90s. Yeah, which is interesting because, like, Riot Girl was going on at the very same time. Like, there were all these things that were happening, but like the way it was being covered, um, yeah, lends itself to a lot of like, re- like you just. It's almost like the uh, the in a movie where you have like the kind of dark and mysterious like rendering of a pop song. You have like. The Jay Leno monologue or just like some terrible joke on, um, you know, People Magazine or something like that. And I'm like imagining like in the future if there's like a Liz Fair docudrama like where she reads like the 0.0 Pitchfork review. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I wonder. Yeah, totally. That would be a great scene too. I I hope that happens. Like she's uh, – I'm trying to think of songs from that self-titled Why Can't I? HWC, yeah, they're, they're yeah, yeah. Wow. That's the one I, I was trying to think of. HWC, yes, like that would be the one. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. T- tough day, tough day for Matt Lemay. He's the guy who wrote that review and also the source tags and codes review. Which, um, you know, I take him a little bit to task in something that comes out today. So, Matt, I love you, dude, but you know, today's not your day. Oh man, um, we should also talk about the Kanye documentary yes. that's on Netflix, Man, Genius. A, a real lack of Kanye talk out there right now. We well, need to fill that void. I haven't been paying attention to the Donda 2 <sighs> stuff. Yeah, I mean, how I know could you? It's, it's going to be on his own player, the STEM player. Okay. And, right, isn't that? Yeah, I guess, I guess it is, else? which is like $200, which you could buy that four times. And still have ten dollars left over if you're like thinking about spending eight hundred and ten dollars on the Fear Inoculum box set. Well, I I decided this weekend I'm treating myself. I'm gonna buy the Donda Two Stem Player. I'm gonna buy the Fear Inoculum <laughs> box set. Yeah. I'm just gonna go hog wild with my music purchases. Um, but this documentary, it's being rolled out. I think there's a new installment of it every week, mm-hmm. and. I know the second part dropped on Wednesday. I haven't seen that one yet. I, I saw the first part. Yeah. Um, and 
there's critics out there who got the the promo stream to write about it, so they've seen the whole thing. Mm. Um, and it sounds like it takes a dark turn. Yeah, as you would expect yes. as as we <laughs> as we move along. But um, I was really struck by the first part. First of all, I'm sucked in yeah. to this thing. I don't know how you feel about it, but I thought. I mean, it's kind of weird because it's not just about Kanye. It's about his relationship with the guy who shot it yeah and there's maybe too much of him in it like yeah. i don't really need to know as much about the guy who shot it uh, yeah um as you know as i do about kanye um but it really is a reminder that when kanye was focused on music mm-hmm. he was great oh god yeah. I, you know and i mean i was thinking about how during the yeezus era he had that thing where he got really angry about not being led into like the fashion world, like he wanted to be a fashion designer. Yeah. And I remember feeling at that moment that, oh, this is the beginning of the end mm. because now he's being distracted. Mm-hmm. He's not just focused on music. And then there were other things obviously before that, but, yeah. and, I, and I obviously didn't know where he was headed. Yeah. Um, but man, I was, you remember that scene in the first part where he's at Rockefeller Records <laughs> and he's going from office to yeah. office? Yeah. Oh my God. Playing uh, All Falls Down and he's basically auditioning for. Just random people in the in in the office, and no one is taking him seriously. Yeah. They're basically treating him like he's this this crazy guy off the street, even though he was already a successful producer producer at that point. I mean, he had this was after he had you know did all that stuff on the Blueprint. Yeah, you know, and they still weren't sure if they wanted to give him a record deal, which seems insane and retrospect yeah but my, the 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 part that's craziest to me is like if Rockefeller wasn't going to give him a record deal, he was considering signing with Raucous, which imagine like. Imagine like 2022 where we're like, oh yeah, remember like that guy Kanye who taught like, you know, rapping about Shrek on Sound Bombing 2? Like that was a funny time. Like he Sabam Sadiq or something like that. Well, it, it's a reminder that at the beginning of his career, he was slotted as, you know, I mean, the, the term backpack rap isn't yeah. really in vogue anymore, but he was kind of slotted in that like intelligent, I'm, I'm doing air quotes. Yeah. Type like, rap music oh, he, does, he doesn't or... rap about like bling and like right. so forth. Like it would be, it, which you know, in a way, he he wasn't to a degree. But yeah, it's uh, it, it, all this stuff in just in retrospect is just so fucking fascinating because like if any of the things that we see didn't happen exactly as they did, like it, it's a real sliding doors type moment where the entirety of pop culture like doesn't happen over the past 30 years or the, sorry the past 20 years so i haven't seen the whole show obviously yet um mm-hmm. i didn't get a promo stream like the critics who wrote about it but based on the reviews i've read it seems that this show uh this this documentary series is being structured as a tragedy you know and which yeah. isn't a surprise given the turn of events in kanye's life in the past five or so years and i'm inclined to view his Life as a tragedy in a way, because I think he was so great uh, in the aughts and early 2010s, and he's become an artist that I I just ignore because it's he makes me sad and depressed, and also I feel on some level that I'm enabling him if I'm paying attention to him. You know, all the all this awful behavior that he's been doing, especially towards his uh, ex wife or soon to be ex wife Kim Kardashian. I don't know if they're are they divorced. I think they're. I I don't know. I, I don't know. Like I, I'm not really. I'm like as caught up on the Kanye gossip as I am on like the actual music, which is to say not a lot. And 
look, my, my individual choices aren't enabling him. Um, I think it's just the uh, the world in general. I don't know if he's a tragedy so much as like, a, or a personal like cautionary tale so much as like, I don't know, like uh, an indicator of where our culture is right now. Um, you know, like, would this be how we'd be seeing Prince if Prince existed in the social media era? Like, we never really got to find that out. But, um, yeah, Kanye is going to do his thing regardless of whether or not they get covered. He gets covered by us or any other media publication or what have you. It's just like, um, I don't think it actually, and I don't think it takes away from like what I got out of his earlier work. You know, some people are like find it impossible to listen to like college dropout knowing where things go. Um, I feel, I still feel the way I feel about the early stuff. So, I mean, just it, I've reached almost like a detente with Kanye where it's like, do your thing. I'm just going to listen to late registration and remember what it was like, um, you know, in 2005 when this was like, I felt like I was on like the cutting edge of like where pop culture was going. Yeah. So. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I, I feel like Yeezus is still a great record. Maybe full dark twisted fantasy. Oh, or, awesome. That's a great record. Everything up until Yeezus and even a good, a decent portion of uh life of Pablo is essential listening. You know, maybe because maybe because I'm it. I follow so many classic rock people. I'm just used to com- to com- yeah. compartmentalizing careers. You know, where you yeah. know the person I care about existed in this period of time, and whatever happened after that, I just block out. And I th- I think that's happened with Kanye, yeah. but um, definitely fascinated by this documentary. Again, it's called Genius. It's on uh, Netflix. Uh, would definitely recommend it. And yeah, I'm I'm definitely. Sucked in and curious to see where it goes from here. I think the most interesting part about it is that Kanye doesn't really like it all that much. He wanted to edit it, which you would think that this was existent in existence because it can be the first thing in a while that presents Kanye in a likable way. Well, light. I'm sure he doesn't like how it goes uh, later on, though. I, yeah. I'm guessing he likes the early... <laughs> how dare this accurate? How dare this accurately report well, on my life? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would probably be yeah. horrified, too, to see that on screen. Yeah. Um, let's get to our mailbag. Thank you all for writing us. It's always great to hear from our listeners. Um, you can hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Um, we've gotten a lot of letters lately, so we've been doing two uh, emails per show. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we aren't looking for more. So please keep writing us. It's always yeah. great to hear from all of you. Do you want to read our first question, Ian? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I do. So uh, this one comes from Peter in Simsbury, Connecticut. Yes. Mm. That, in, in, that, that's I'm told in, yeah. that it's near Hartford. Oh, very cool. <laughs> do you really think that? Do you really think that's cool? That do you? I okay. do. All right, man. Like, uh, I, 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 I honestly do. We love these pockets of America, which are you know underserved by the trend hashing industry. Uh, so this question is about Mark Lanigan, who passed uh, away this week at the age of 57, which is really unfortunate. You know, we're big fans of. Uh, all of his work Absolutely. here in IndyCast. So uh, Peter says that I'm only, P- this is Peter talking, I'm only familiar with him through his work with Queens of the Stone Age and Isabel Campbell, but I expect I'll do a deep dive through his catalog in the coming weeks. So this got me thinking, are there artists whose deaths inspire you to go deeper into their catalog who subsequently became favorites of yours? My two examples are John Prine, who was, I was un, 100% unaware of before his death and who I now consider to be one of the greatest American songwriters ever. And George Harrison, who I always considered to be the third best Beatle, but after his death quickly became my second Ooh, favorite under Paul. Sometimes moved up a slot. One. 
Yeah, ring, watch out, Ringo. He's gunning for the number one. Um, especially since I consider all things must pass as the best post-Beatles record full stop. So Peter wants to know if we have examples of our own in this phenomenon. Uh, yes, there are. But before we get to that, I feel like we should talk a little bit about Mark Lanigan um, and oh, yeah. his life and career. You know, if you know anything about him, you know that he lived a pretty hard life. <laughs> Lots <Yeah>. of self-abuse <laughs> in his life. Uh, he wrote a great memoir that came out in uh, 2020 called Sing Backwards and Weep. And he writes about all of the absolutely insane things that happened in his life. And it seems like for many years, he was actively, if not trying to kill himself, he was at least indifferent about his survival. Uh, And yet his death at 57, when I saw the news, uh, I guess that was on Wednesday, I was shocked because he had survived so much that he had that... Yeah. Keith Richards type thing where you feel like he's indestructible. He he's gonna live yeah. to be ninety because it, you know, <laughs> or else he would have died much, you know, sooner than uh, than uh, than he did. But um, a really fascinating career. I mean, obviously he's with Screaming yeah. Trees, and then he. I think a lot of people heard about him when he was with Queens of the Stone Age. Um, he uh, has a big body of work, a lot of solo records. Um, I'm a big mm. fan of The Winding Sheet, which was his first solo mm. record. came out in 1990. And a uh, fascinating record. Uh, he does Where Did You Sleep Last Night on that record. And Kurt Cobain sings backing vocals on it. And it is very similar to the Where Did You Sleep Last Night that's on MTV Unplugged in New York. Um, and just the vibe mm. of that record, I think, really influenced what Nirvana did on that album. It's like this sort of grunge yeah. folk Sound very dark, lead belly, yeah, bluesy. <laughs> um, and then he, he put out a record after that called uh, Whiskey for the Holy Ghost, which I think, which that's a very that the most oh, Mark Lanigan, absolutely, album title. and it lives <laughs> up to that album title. It is a beautiful record. Yeah. Uh, and he just made so many good albums. Bubblegum is another solo record of his that I think is really great. Mm-hmm. Um, he's yeah. a great writer too. Uh, he wrote another yeah. book, uh, in addition to his memoir, uh, before he passed. Uh, yeah, he what a loss. I mean, it's really sad that he died. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he he's just somewhat it's like hard when you watch the old uh Screaming Trees videos like Nearly Lost You, um it's kind of hard to believe he ever looked like that and not like this um this uh, I I say hobo like lovingly like in that kind of Tom Waits sort of thing where it's like you can't imagine this person like living in a house or like whole like or like paying for anything other than like you know broken coins also we got to mention dust which is an indycast hall of fame uh in yeah, screaming trees incredible screaming trees. it was yes. the follow-up to sweet oblivion yeah it was uh it was not very commercially successful but um still like a, v- a real fish out of water album in 1996 in like you know the time of where we were starting to see like the elect, like grunge fading out and electronica starting to come in, but yeah, excellent album. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot to dive into. If you're just discovering Mark Lanigan, I also have to do a quick shout out to Dallas. Good of the Mm. Sadie's Dallas. Good passed away, uh, recently. Um, I think that was, I'm trying to remember when that was. I think it was after our last episode. Yeah, Um, it was definitely, I think it was earlier this week. Yeah. Earlier this week. Uh, the Sadie's another band that um, has a big catalog, and 
I feel like they're unheralded. I, I know a lot of people love them. Yeah. Uh, you know, Kurt Vile recently toured with them, I think, uh, huh. like three or four years ago. Um, and, you know, they made some albums with Nico Case. And hmm. they always kind of would pop up, you know, occasionally. But I still feel like they didn't quite get their due uh, as a band. And, and that's a band that if you haven't heard them, what a catalog. It, it, it's fantastic. I, I would I would describe them as, uh, they're, they're Canadian band, but they kind of feel like, this great lost American band in a lot of ways. They, they, they play folk music, country music. There's some psychedelia in there. There's like some surf rock. Just mm. a, a, a kind of band that like you wish was playing in a bar, like the bar that you, like, <laughs> like a dive bar that you walk into. This is the band that you wish was on stage. Uh, like, huh. they're, like they're the best possible version of a band like that. Uh, so shout out to the late, great Dallas Good. Uh, but let's get to the question. Are there artists mm. that you discovered because they passed away? Yeah. And of course, you know, they're, uh, they're ones who it, it creates this like kind of urgency to listen to their music. Um, not so much to like, oh, did I see it coming? But to just really understand like the depth of their catalog. And for me, like I was agnostic towards David Berman and Jason Molina, uh, their music for a while until they passed away. And it's like, okay, well, you know, now I'll, you know, I'll give this a go. And I discovered, yeah, this like it, they're everything that people say they were. You know, it, their deaths didn't hit me as hard as you know some of their fans. Like you know, for example, like uh, Tim from Strand of Oaks wrote a song called "JM" about Jason Molina. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think those people are good examples of it. You know, whenever like a legend passes away, like be it Prince or David Bowie, I always go back through their catalog. But um, as far as like ones I was kind of surprised by, like with Lil Peep particularly and Juice World, like I didn't love their music while it was happening. Um, but with their deaths, I mean, as sad as it sounds, it like it kind of cemented their place in pop culture as, um, you know, like where things started to shift sonically. And so I listened to their music, tried to understand like where things were going from there. And, um, you know, it, it added a dimension uh, of, you know, this is why for the next 20 years, people will be regarding Lil Peep and Juice World as these legendary figures. Um, yeah, I don't want to say it, like, validates the music or, like, makes it any, like, because there's, like, this ghoulish idea, particularly behind, like, Kurt Cobain or Elliot Smith, that, like, when people die, it kind of elevates their music in a way that it wouldn't if they lived another 20 years, but... Yeah, it's really unfortunate to discover music through this way, but it also is a good learning experience yeah, as far as like what it takes to get into a way in. It's funny that you bring up Lil Peep and Juice World because I had a similar experience with that too. After they passed away, I it prompted me to dig deeper into their catalog, and maybe it was just because both of those people they put out so much music while when they yeah. were alive, and when they when they died, it did give a sense of urgency of okay, mm-hmm. now I haven't. I don't want to say an excuse, but it was like a reason to dive in. I think before yeah. that, there was just so much music that you could kind yeah, it of just, block it, it out. It seems less intimidating to right. to note. Well, and all, but you know, that's before like they've released like what it seems like ten Juice World uh, posthumous compilations. Right. Since. Uh, the person I thought of immediately when I saw this question uh, was Warren Zevon, uh, and ah. and he had an he's an interesting case because. Um, he died in public. You know, he announced that he had cancer uh, famously okay. on the David Letterman show. And David Letterman gave him a whole episode to do an interview. And he did three musical performances. It's like one of the great, like late night music 
performances mm. of all time. Um, and then he ended up dying a year later. So, and he, and he recorded an album uh, called The Wind that was nominated for a Grammy. And that album mm. is about him addressing his uh, oncoming death. So he hadn't died yet, but he was in the process of dying. And, you know, I was... 24 25 years old when this was happening so i hadn't i was aware of werewolves of london but i didn't really know his catalog and uh it prompted me to dive in and i'm glad because he's one of my favorite artists of all time so uh, so that was an interesting case uh with zivon um a lot of singer songwriters that we're, we're talking about yeah. here we had berman zivon uh little peep he's a singer songwriter let's get to our second question and i'll read this one this comes from jordan in detroit the Motor City. Mm. Love Detroit. Thank you, Jordan, for writing in. Um, guy named Jordan from Detroit. I wonder if that's difficult at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's Pistons country, man. The bad Gosh. boys. Um, anyway, Jordan writes, I wanted to ask you guys about the aging of music. As I've heard mm. from this very podcast and others talk about certain music not aging well, usually music in the 2000s. I want to know more about what you think qualifies music that is spoiled. Is it the lyrics? Is it the sound? Is it the production? Or is it simply hash trends and genres shifting to different places and we collectively move on? I uh, I get our taste changed, but I randomly remember the shout out louds and put on very loud and thought, wow, <laughs> this sounds like 2005 and this actually kind of slap, slaps still. So the shout out louds. Yes. Good, good stuff. Good reference there. Uh, so yeah, he's one. So basically, the question is, what is it about music from the past that causes it not to age well? Like, what elements typically spoil, I guess, mm. the fastest? Well, I think you know. First off, like, wow, this sounds like 2005, and this actually kind of slaps. Describes a lot of music that I currently like. So, um, but yeah, I think with 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 regards to like what causes music to age well, or I think this is a really an eye of the beholder thing, and maybe this is just you know online brain talking. But when I find that there's a discussion about like whether or not like music is aged well, there are two things that determine that, and the first of which is that how it aligns with the current trends that are happening as far as like culture at large, and secondly, like how it serves the point of the person making the argument about how it's aged. Because um, you know, right now, I think that music that is largely seen as aging poorly is the uh, GADP or however you want to call it, Obama era indie rock, like, you know, Animal Collective, Grizzly Bear, Dirty Projectors, et cetera. Um, you know, less so because of like the production or, you know, the lyrics themselves, but just this veneer of being from the Obama era with its optimism and also like, you know, music, you know, the, mu the music critic narrative being determined largely by, a less diverse pool of people. So, you know, you think about like what's going on in 2022 with, you know, the pandemic and the possibility of World War III and, um, you know, everything else that's going on. It's really hard to see how that music aligns with the current day. Um, and so I would say that it's, it's usually more of like a cultural fit than anything about production or lyrics. I also, I think production is usually the first thing to age poorly. Um, but you know, I just kind of want to give a shout to like music that sounds dated. I don't know why that's always seen as a bad thing. No, you know, like, not at all. I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that there's something to defining the sound of your era. That is yeah. a really great accomplishment 
for an artist to achieve. And, and that's often the music that seems dated or is described as data, dated because it, it's so synonymous with, with a particular year or decade. But, you know, like Robert Johnson music sounds dated to the 1930s and people love it for that reason. <laughs> or like yeah, Steely exactly. Dan or Fleetwood Mac sounds very 70s and it's great for that reason. Um, the other thing that's interesting about music that's described as dated is that that is... I think a pretty fluid distinction. Like, th- like there are certain sounds that for a time feel dated and then they age back into feeling yeah. contemporary. Like I have a big piece running today on Uproxx about Neil Young. I wrote about every Neil Young studio album and I ranked them. And there was a wow. period where his eighties albums, particularly albums like life and landing on water, which are, more synthesizer heavy or most infamously trans, you know, like his big electronic record. Those records were reviled in their day. People thought Mm. that they were too beholden to the sounds of the eighties, but you listen to them now, especially life, his 1987 album. And it kind of sounds like a lot of the music that's described as heartland rock now in uh, the modern era. Like it could kind of be like a war on drugs sounding record. And in a way, it sounds more contemporary than other records that he made uh, in his career. Um, you know, I remember, you know, for a long time, the 80s in general were looked at as this horribly dated time with terrible production. And people ran the other direction from it. Um, mm-hmm. And now, of course, the 80s, it's like this uh, reference point that we can't get away from. In, uh, yeah. in, in pop and indie people love the 80s and they're less inclined to say embrace grunge in the 90s which in a lot of ways was a reaction to the 80s like yeah. like like, in the, like when nirvana was popular in the early 90s the 80s were reviled and it was like no this is like, this is a raw sound this is you know we we're doing this because we're reacting to the glossiness of the previous era right and then it flips at some point, and then it becomes like, well, that sounds so early 90s, or that sounds so grunge. Although that's come, kind of come back in a way in, in recent years. Um, mm-hmm. so, so again, like these things, they're, they're changing all the time, like how they're looked at, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I'm just uh, like, I, I'm thinking that like people are trying to will an indie sleaze revival, largely because it's so out of step with what's happening right now. Like people are just trying to get in on the ground floor if like, you know, the 2003 to 2007, like deep V-neck American apparel vibe comes back. Yeah, you know? I think that because you're referring to that New York Magazine article <laughs> that came out this week, the Indie Sleaze Oh, article. the vibe shift, yes. The vibe shift. And, you know, I think what that really comes down to is that there's this old theory about culture that it's a pendulum, you know, and you go to one direction and then you go in the opposite direction mm-hmm. as a reaction to it. And to me, like my read on that Indie Sleaze thing is that people are anticipating a reaction to the earnestness of like the last several years and the, um, I don't want to use a term that's frequently thrown around in terms of culture and, and, uh, you know, getting rid of people who say wrong things. I don't want to use that overused term, but you know, there is a sort of stifling nature right now to Mm -hmm. a lot of cultural conversations. And maybe there's this idea that things are going to get a little naughty again. I don't know if that's true. I, 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 but I don't know. I'll be curious to see if that happens. Yeah. Uh, let's get to the meat of our episode. Yeah. Talking about Gang of Youths. 
Gang of Youths. A band that is big around the world, big Huge. on this show. I feel like they're not famous at all in America, although there was a period mm. in the late 2010s where they seemed to be ascendant and then the pandemic happened. I'm curious to see how that affects their progress. But for those who don't know, Gang of Youths, they're a band from Australia. Uh, mm-hmm. They have put out two records previous to the one that they're putting out today. Uh, mm-hmm. Their 2017 record, Go Farther in Lightness, I was a huge fan of that record. I wrote a lot about that album. You, I guess we'll get into this. You yeah. had mixed feelings about it, but I think you came around later. It's mm-hmm. basically a record that uh, <laughs> draws on the history of anthemic, heart-exploding, uplifting indie rock and alternative rock from the past 40 years. I mean, in a way, I feel like that record synthesizes everything from the Joshua Tree to uh, the Nationals Boxer to Funeral to you name it, all the big Mm. kind of heart-busting records uh, from the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. Um, On their new record out today called Angel in Real Time, I wrote about this in my review. You know, if Go Farther in Lightness was their version of The Joshua Tree, this Mm. feels like their version of Octune Baby, Mm. a record that is employing so many different sounds. I mean, you've got a lot of dance music on this record. You've got uh, sampled voices from the Pacific Islands because that's a part of the narrative of this album. Uh, Dave, the lead singer, dealing with the death of his father and also... Mm discovering that he had a family that he didn't know about. So very heavy subject matter. Um, synthesizing all these sounds and really creating, I think, one of the biggest sounding records that come out of rock mm. music in the past few years. I I wrote this in my review. I don't know if this is the best album of the year. I mean, I think it's in the running for me anyway, but it's definitely the most album yeah. of the year. There's a lot to chew on on this record I'm not sure exactly how you feel about it, but I I feel like this is the kind of record that you and I want to embrace. (laughs) Yeah, Gang of Youth is an extremely indie cast band, you know, not to be too self-serving here, but I interviewed Dave back in 2018, and he would talk about, like, how uh, The Monitor was a huge deal for him. Boxer was a huge deal. Like, he was in tears when Japan Droids came to Australia, and they passed on Gang of Youth as an opening band. Uh, He also really loved, like, Thursday and Touche Amore and whatnot. And also, he, he seemed to know an, a, an unusual amount about the University of Georgia football. Uh, there's a lot of sports references on this album, by the way. Like, Daniel Ricardo, the F1 racer, he was, like, one of the people who, like, big up the band back in, like, 2015. Uh, and he gets, like, a shout-out on this album. A lot of rugby, a lot of uh, soccer references. And, uh, like, as you were alluding to earlier... First time I heard um, What Can I Do If The Fire Goes Out and the rest of that record, I fucking hated it. Like, I thought it was, it's like one of those situations where it feels so catered to your interest that you have to distrust it a little. Um, It just seemed like a bit like over the top. And I kind of like thought in my head, like, oh, this is kind of like airborne toxic event in a way. Um, That opinion has not aged well for me. Uh, I ended up loving it. Uh, When it comes down to like discussing how music is aged, uh, to me, it was so out of step with everything that was happening in 2017 with like kind of the changing of the guard of 2010s indie rock and a lot of bands like going for something more small and intimate. This blown out 70 some odd minute, eight like eight minute song, big string section album. Like I, it just won me over just by how, I don't know, how contrary it was. Um, and 
you know, I saw them perform in a 250 cap room in LA. Uh, and it just, it, it was like, how is like, you want to see bands play bigger rooms because you think, oh, they should be more popular. Like this band can scale up, like they can play any venue and fill it. So, um, you know, it was kind of a bummer that they took that took as long as they did to follow things up. And I'm, you know, just curious how this will be received, you know, with the, with the gap in time. Yeah. It's, it's a curious situation with this band because you listen to this record and you feel like if you didn't know anything else about this band, you would assume like this is like the biggest band in the world because yeah. <laughs> it, it, it not only does it sound big, it, it feels like an expensive record. Yeah, it, very it, expensive. <laughs> and, and I know that like they, they ventured to several countries to make this record. They, I, I think they went to Hungary to record like a 42 piece orchestra yeah. for this, for this album. Um, they, you know, recorded and re-recorded it three different times, you know, trying to get, like, the right sound. You know, I mean, I think Dave is a pretty big perfectionist with his records. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just feel like, oh, this is, like, the the new U2. And, yeah. and there's certainly parts of the world, like, where they are, I think, like, one of the, the biggest young rock bands. And they've made inroads in America. I know that they get a lot of airplay, for instance, on, like, NPR-type radio huh. stations. Like, here okay. in Minneapolis, I think that they're a big band on... The current that's like the local version of uh, Minnesota, Minnesota Public Radio. Um, so they do well there. They were signed to Warner Brothers in twenty. Yeah, that's a big part of it. <laughs> so, so they. But the, even before that, though, like the Go Farther and Lightness was getting a lot of support. I think. Yeah, from, they won a lot of Australian like Grammys. Yes, but for the most part, I mean, I feel like the American press still treats them as a cult act if they had write about them they at acknowledge all. Acknowledge them at all. Yeah, Go Farther and Lightness was like not covered by just. Like, besides you and I, I don't know too many people who covered it. I mean, I know Greg Cott talked about it. I mean, there's some other yeah. critics, but, you know, like the big indie sites, like Pitchfork, I don't think, reviewed it. Stereo no. Gum didn't talk about it. I'm curious to see what kind of coverage this album gets. I mean, it's a bit of a mixed blessing because my suspicion is that this is not the kind of band that um, Pitchfork is going to embrace, for instance. Probably, probably not, to be honest with you. Like, I actually talked about that in the Stereo Gum uh, interview I did, which came out about a year after the record, which is that, like, you know, Dave, they, they, they're a band that, like, probably read it a whole bunch, you know, given the, the music they're into. It's like, if people knew more about this band, they would probably reflexively hate it because it's, you know, emblematic of a, you know, to go back to our how things have aged conversation. It just seems like a transmission from a time when, indie bands wanted to play like you know coachella like that was what they wanted to do like post arcade fire like this is what they were gunning for or even just the earnest the earnestness of it all is can be a little off-putting um the expensiveness of it um it there's a lot of you two in it yeah yeah and um i mean they've been called the ted lasso of of rock music, which uh, they have, uh, yeah. Well, so yeah, someone <laughs> tweeted that once, and and, and Davis oh. talked about that in interviews. I thought that was Dave Grohl. Uh, well, I guess you, uh, there's probably many yeah. Ted Lassos of music, yeah. but you know, and I think a fan actually called them Ted Lasso of music, um, okay. and it, so I could see them being polarizing in that kind of way. But I mean, there's something about their music that to me, it, it isn't even indie rock. It is more of like a nineties no, type sensibility to it. Um, like on this record, especially. Um, and I think Dave has talked about this being a reference point, you know, talking about like nineties Brit pop. Uh, yeah. There's a song on the record called spirit boy that seems deliberately pitched in that kind of style. But I think like most of the record, 
it feels like a band trying to write bitter, bittersweet symphony on every on every song and and i mean that as a compliment because i think bittersweet symphony is like one of the greatest songs ever made uh or or champagne supernova you know like just these grand beautiful songs i think it's more do you know what i mean there's like and i say this with love like a little bit of be here now as far as like how much like production is going on here well you know using like the samples of voices like the the choral voices uh from you know places like the cook islands and like a lot of these samples come from like the late 70s you know because they Mm. people like visiting uh indigenous populations and, and recording them uh and the way that's uh integrated with all of the big string sections and and the break beats and mm-hmm. the big choruses i mean i think it's like a personally i mean i love this kind of production i think it's oh, like i love it i think it's like a pretty stunning sounding record i yeah. and, and and that's part of like what i luxuriate in when i listen to this album <laughs> um and i have to say that at a time where I feel like a lot of bands, even bands I like, feel kind of narrowly pitched into like a sonic piece of real estate, <laughs> it, it's refreshing to hear a, a record with this many ideas and mm-hmm. with with and, and just willing to go out, you know, from here to the moon. You know, yeah. uh, so I I really love the record for that reason. Um, so yeah, I don't know, I. It's interesting with this band. I feel like this is a band I've talked about a lot. And mm-hmm. I've found that when I recommend them to people, that more often than not, they get into them. I mean, I, I do think that there is an audience for this kind of band. Uh, because mm-hmm. there's not really a lot of bands doing this kind of thing, especially at this level. Uh, it does feel like they should be playing arenas. And maybe they will be. but Maybe you, they will, yeah. But, but you can I mean... see them now in a 250-person club. And it feels like seeing... Springsteen and the East Street Band on the Born in the USA tour. You know, yeah. it has that kind of massive uh, power and sound, but you're going to see them in this very small space. Yeah. And like, I, I, it's just exactly like you're saying. Like, if people like were to, if more people were like presented with this kind of music, like, I think it's the sort of like, so much of this reminds me of the late 90s, particularly like the combination of like breakbeats and samples. It's very much of that like cash flush CD era where, Bands were making like 70 minute records and spending like a ton of money. It's like, you know, it's like this is our globe trotting album. We're really getting into electronica or whatever. And um, yeah, like this is the sort of band, like if, if, like I could just envision like a video, like a really well crafted video on MTV taking them to the stratosphere or something like that. It's almost like you wish they were from a different times where they had like a different sort of music industry that could serve their purposes better. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think this is a band where like, the record's good enough to take them to the new level. It's just a matter of like whether or not they can find their audience because I don't think the, you know, the critical realm is going to be overly kind to this record. I think it's not going to convince people who are not into it because I mean, I think a lot of the qualities that were divisive about them are amplified here. Like the earnestness, like, I mean, like there are songs that are very literally about like him finding out he has uh, like brothers, for example. Like, I'm curious what you think of that song. I mean, I love that song. And uh, as you said, it's him writing directly about finding out that his father had another family that he never knew about. So he's singing about meeting his brothers. And it is a departure from the rest of the record because it's just him and piano. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not the, the sort of grandness that you get on the rest of the record. Um, yeah, I will say about Gang Abuse, and, and we haven't really talked about the lyrical aspect of this band. I, I think Dave's like actually a really good writer. Yeah. Um, and 
I think that sets them apart a little bit from the oasises of the world for yeah. instance, like where the lyrics are just garbage. Um, uh, I, they're not garbage, but they're like kind of a texture. Let's well, call it. Well, <laughs> they're, 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 uh, they're great tasting garbage. I, w- yeah. I would say uh, their <laughs> lyrics, but you know, Dave, I think actually puts a lot of thought into the lyrics and, and yeah. they're, they're, they're really well done. And usually there's like words that I've never heard of before that I have to look mm. up if I'm reading the lyric sheet. Like I, I learned what tenterhook means yeah. from this album. Um, but, uh, you know, there's the, some of the, like the cultural issues that he's that he's exploring on this record. I yeah. feel like that's something that if people are going to write about this album, I mean, I think that could be a way in because uh, absolutely. You know, this isn't just like a white guy indie rock band singing, you yeah. know, big songs. I mean, there is a very distinct and unique point of view being expressed on mm. this record that yeah, hopefully it doesn't get covered a lot. Like, n- not at all. Yeah, and I think that's going to be an interesting contrast of like. It sounds like, you know, this big, for lack of a better term, white guy, you know, arena rock music dealing with like very distinct under um, underappreciated cultural issues. Yes. I don't know. Give this record a chance. I feel like we're begging people to listen to this band. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shouldn't have to. They're a really great band. And uh, yeah, they they are like an indie. They are one of like the indie cast mascots. I think like them. While we Pink, haven't even talked about how Adam Duritz is on this album. <laughs> Adam Duritz coming up again in this episode. Uh, second appearance for Adam. Yeah, he's on the record. So th- yeah, that just layers on another indie cast element <laughs> on this yeah. record. But if you, I think it's fair to say if you like our show, if you, you know, listen to us because you like our tastes. Yeah. If you don't know this band, check them out because I think you will like them. Yeah, and I also think this, th- like, uh, this is one of the rare times where I could say this album should be a movie. Like the thing, the the stuff that like happens with his father is like just, I would I would read like a book about this. I would read a movie about this or, or see a movie about this. I, I like I hope this becomes like a phenomenon that inspires maybe even a Pam and Tommy type uh, <laughs> docudrama in the future. <laughs> We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so um, a record that comes out today that I've been looking forward to for, I would say, like the past two years is a band called Caroline. Uh, they are an eight-piece. Um, you know, when I sit, when a band's got eight people in it, I'm probably going to be into it. Um, <laughs> I would describe them as like kind of like a post-rock band from the UK. They have kind of a vague association with bands like Black Midi. They're on Rough Trade. They have a producer that they share with them. Um, And I heard about them back in 2020. Uh, They had a single called Dark Blue that came out. And it was pitched to me as like, there's kind of like Appalachian folk, but also Midwest emo and, you know, stuff like the 33 and Godspeed You Black Emperor. It's like, okay, sold. Um, And they kept releasing singles throughout uh, 2020 and 21. Um, that were really evocative, you know, usually like six to seven minutes, quiet, minimal, but like also very loud when they want to be. Um, and, uh, you know, I figured, I don't know what's going to happen with this band. How do you have an eight person instrumental band during the pandemic era? But they finally put together everything as an album. It's self-titled. It's out today. And um, it's 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 a great record in itself if you like a lot of those bands from you know, the night, like the nineties, whether we're talking about like, um, you know, the dirty three, as I talked about before, there's also some like late period mineral in there, I'd say, um, or Ariogram, which is an IndyCast hall of fame nominee for the future. 
Um, but what strikes me about this record is that I think of it along the lines of Black Country, New Road, where there might be kind of a shift of UK uh, post-punk, post-rock away from like that sardonic, the fall, like absurdist sort of uh, sound to something a little more overtly and nakedly emotional. Um, uh, I really hope that that's also true of like Death Crash, which we talked about in a previous episode. Um yeah, I think that this album, it sounds like nothing else out there. Um, and if it if any of the bands I talked about are ones that you're like, oh, yeah, what happened to them? Uh, this is going to hit your needs. So uh, if you like just straight up emo post-rock, this is for you. So the band I want to talk about is called Pillow Queens. Uh, I've mm. actually talked about this band in Recommendation Corner before uh, in uh, connection to their 2020 record called In Waiting. I was late on that record about a year late came to it because wild pink speaking of them covered one of their songs and that brought me into the record and uh i just thought oh this is just exactly what i like just really again in that gang of use vein uplifting anthemic guitar rock just beautiful songs and uh i don't want to be behind the times again so i want to give a heads up to everyone about their next record coming out on April 1st. It's called Leave the Light On. And um, I think it's even better than In Waiting. It's a really good record. You know, I, again, I feel like I keep using the same words to describe <laughs> music in this episode. Uh, but it, this is just like a really melodic, straightforward rock band. You know, there's nothing, I guess, like, they're, they're not redesigning the wheel in any kind of way. But I, I, I just like this band a lot. And I think that our listeners would get into them. I feel like they're starting to get some play out there um but uh not enough so i want to give a push to them again they're called pillow queens uh you can hear some of the record already on streaming platforms again the whole record comes out in about a month on april 1st but i would again recommend going back to in waiting i think that's a really good record it seems like the kind of album that um is going to grow in estimation as the years go along because Mm -hmm. it, it just feels like the kind of record that you can just play over and over again and not get sick of it. So, yeah. Pillow Queens. Sort of like Wild Pink. <laughs> sort of like Wild Pink, exactly. Um, I feel like we also should shout out the String Machine record. Oh, yeah. That again. Yeah, which we talked about last week, but it's actually out today. Yes. So, listen yeah, to cool. that. Great album. Speaking of like seven, you know, seven to eight people bands who are, you know, Obama era reflective questions about like how it fits with the current narrative great fucking record yes i yes that will be an indie cast listener favorite i have a feeling so definitely check out that album uh we have now reached the end of our episode thank you so much for listening we'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week and if you're looking for more music recommendations sign up for the indie mixtape newsletter you can go to uprocks.com backslash indie and i recommend five albums per week and we'll send it directly to your email box (laughs) 